0: For rocking with us, check it, Check it. Julie, kick off the show.
1: Welcome to Crazy and the King.
0: Who am I to delay an incredible conversation like we we promised you all a part two with John. What did you like most last week when we had part one?
1: I mean, I think I just enjoyed the conversation that you two had so much. I, I told you both I felt a little bit like a voyeur, but it was such a natural and authentic conversation that I got to learn and, and reap the benefit from. So I thank you guys for letting me do that. Uh, you know, getting into meritocracy and understanding for me, I think it's always hard for a white person to understand and grasp that we are one generation away right, from that Jim Crow era, not that far historically from a slave era. That is hard for me to understand. And so much of what I read in John's book kind of kept bringing me back to that place, right? That resetting me in our history. And I think that was really important. And the piece that I love where we left off is we started to get into what does plantation theory look like and how does it manifest itself in the workplace? And I think that's where we should pick back up today.
0: Yeah. So why don't we do this? Let's, uh, let's slip a commercial in. Um, we got to have them. So let's slip a commercial in and then let's just reintroduce John, because we may have picked up some folks that hadn't listened to last week's episode. We'll reintroduce John, who he is, the role that he's playing right now inside of uh, a special corporate corridor, uh, and then we'll just hop back into our conversation. Real quick, commercial break, and we'll be right back.
2: Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate, the podcast that asks you what you wanna be when you grow up so you can graduate into retirement with a purpose and a passion, whether you're 25, 85, or any age in between. Gain actionable financial and mindset tips from your favorite authors, Podcasters and influencers to help you reach that exciting next chapter. Listen now and start building your path to financial freedom and reframing what retirement can mean to you. This is your host, Eric Brotman, reminding you don't retire, graduate.
1: All right, so let's we re welcome John Graham, VP of Employer Brand Culture and Diversity at Shaker Recruitment Marketing. He is the author of Plantation Fe- Theory, not plantation theory let me try that again he identifies as he him he is a black man a husband a father a spiritualist a creative and a fraternal brother welcome back yeah, john a book,
0: yeah a book that's um 150 or so pages what i love about his uh introduction is he starts to hit on the dimensions of diversity because i think so many times we pause at race and gender we don't really get beyond and get into the other dimensions of diversity. I think if we really are honest with ourselves, employee engagement would be even better if we knew the multiple dimensions of who people are. So John, we appreciate you for being here with us again.
2: Thank you so much for having me back. Uh, It was a great conversation. Uh, And and as we can always talk at length, but I know you have a format. So Yeah. yeah,
0: happy to pick up on round two. Yeah. So Julie mentioned something, you know, as we were exiting out of uh, the conversation last week, she she had a phrase. uh, I think she called it white lash. I'm not sure if that's exactly what she said. And I don't know many pods where you get to talk about uh, white lash, voyeurism, slavery. Um, <laughs> this is an interesting word cloud. <laughs> you know what I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible concoction of of words, language, but but it's riveting. Yeah. And so, Julia, did I get it right? Is it white lash?
1: It is, and and you talk about white lash, and it stood out to me. I actually, t- we'll tell you, John. I took a picture of this particular paragraph that you had in the book and sent it to a peer uh, who's helping me with the diversity program that I'm I'm building. And I said, "Oh, this feels familiar." And so, you know, in my experience, let me just give you the the setup. Um, yeah we're starting to have conversations in workplaces that I'm supporting that are creating uncomfortableness, go figure, for white people because they don't quite understand why work is forcing me to see things that I didn't want to see before. And I feel like that is like the definition of white lash, but please talk to us about (laughs) white lash.
2: Yeah, no, that's that's excellent. What what you just described is a catalyst for white lash. White lash being the uh, repercussion for that discomfort, right? For that uncomfortable feeling that you have forced me to have. Now I'm going to respond in a way that takes my agency and power back, right? And so white lash can be expressed in ways like managers giving very uh, un un. Uh, Unobjective performance reviews, or, uh, you know, or it could be individual contributors reaching out and filing complaints for reverse racism. It could be, uh, you know, uh, again, just the, the shutting down or non participation, the opting out. This doesn't apply to me. I'm good. I know I'm a good person. So, you know, and sidestepping. And that's, that becomes sort of this again, you have to really get into the crux of this. This construct were it. Everything was designed around white comfort, specifically cisgendered able bodied white male comfort. So anything that deviates from that, offends that, you're going to see a repercussion and a quick reversion back to a state of comfort.
1: And I know we have systemic change that has to happen. I kind of want to spend the latter half sure. of our, our conversation this week talking about that. But what is it? What is a white person to do? What is a white ally to do when we start to see that reversion happen? Right. I generally react angrily. That's probably Mm -hmm. not my best way to go about, you know, influencing people and things. Um, So, (laughs) so give an angry white girl some good tips.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So, so I always say we, we don't need allies. We need abolitionists, right? We need people to, that have skin in the game, that will take the power and the privilege or the entitlement and status, and leverage that for the benefit of those without. Or, at best, don't impede those same things for others, right? So what can you do tactically, tangibly? It becomes a conversation of, well, I hear you. I know that you feel uncomfortable. But let's talk about historical context. Let's talk about why you're being exposed to things that you've never had to be exposed to. Why is it at your age as an adult, these are the first times you're hearing that, right? What have you done to educate yourself or really step into other people's shoes? These are the questions that you who have taken uh, a longer journey down this road can challenge uh, You know, people who are feeling these uh, you know, insurmountable feelings of discomfort. Um, and and open up broader dialogues from a common place.
0: I'm looking, um, and I don't have it next to me right now, but when I think about what you and how you defined white lash, I so appreciate that. The other phrase that is similar is white fragility, and a lot of people have divorced themselves or distanced themselves from white fragility. They don't Mm -hmm. like it. And so it becomes yet another cog in that wheel of uncomfort or discomfort, discomfort. It it becomes another cog in that wheel of discomfort. So I appreciate how you um, defined the white lash. And and, and just for a moment, I want listeners to just take a, a second to get outside of the company and to think about how that white lash shows up in community to think about how that white lash shows up in the circumstances of other individuals, and then come back to that familiar phrase of bring your whole self to work. And why is it that the single mother may have a slight attitude? Or why is it that the person uh, that's often been overlooked and under represented and under-resourced in particular roles is a little bit angry around whatever decision was made last week, or they've been passed over for promotion after promotion after promotion. I want you to think about what John has said in that definition. Think about where you sit in these comfort and or times of discomfort, and then how you are responding. Are you like Julie? Julie's being angry for a different reason. Are you angry because you are being forced to face what we are talking about? That's the reason why we wanted to have you on and to continue the conversation. It's not just in the corporate corridor. It's in community and in circumstance as well. Absolutely.
1: So we talk about, we've talked a lot about, and you mentioned in the last show, kind of the ever moving goalpost, Right low expectations, Mm -hmm. higher expectations. And one thing that I think that you frame really nicely and I think is important for abolitionists to understand is that so much of what we see that holds black professionals back is microaggressions. It is subtle in terms of it's not overtly racist. It's not over it, and sometimes it is. Maybe that's an overstatement, but people don't catch it because it happens as part of the systems that are developed within a company's organizational structure. And mm-hmm. the the last kind of part that I kind of wanted to bring together today was the accountability conundrum. It's it's one of the chapters and mm-hmm. You know, we started this conversation last week and Torn asked me what what irritates you about 2021. And I said, it's that we're not moving. And I think the accountability conundrum is really the root cause, right? That's where we are. And so Mm -hmm. I'd love for you to talk about one, why has DEI failed? And make sure that we also talk about Trickle down DEI.
2: Mm. A lot a lot to unpack there. I'll I'll say first. Um, you know when we talk about accountability, and you actually said this just a moment ago. What can you do? I think we're past a point of capability. It's really about a willingness issue. Right. When we talk about accountability, we right we've seen models move when COVID hit. Companies changed their entire operating model in six weeks. Multi-billion dollar, multinational companies moved forward IT projects that were 12 months, 18 months out and knocked them out in six weeks to 10 weeks. So I know what we're capable of. What are we willing to do? That's one. Additionally, when we talk about DEI and its failures, DEI has not failed. It's doing exactly what it was designed to do. Reason I say that is because of who DEI centers. Diversity, equity, and inclusion have a centering premise, right? It's what is the standard for diverse? Let's let's start with that because you have to have something to compare it to to say it's diverse. Well, the standards always been cisgendered, able-bodied, white men. So diverse is anything other than that. Equity means those people giving something up, and inclusion meaning them accepting you. Now, if we're talking about the comfort and the pace of change, well, some people would say a lot's been done. Okay, But I guarantee if you ask any Black employee at any company that's made commitments since May of 2020, has their daily lived experience changed? The resounding answer is no. And so DEI as a compliance-based commitment to activity is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. What we're trying to do is move it forward to a solutions-based, humanity-centered work. Right? And when we talk about humanity, that gets into a lot of the historical reference of, of how the construct was set up. So I'll say, you know, without going too deep into the history lesson, let's just agree that in order for business to run, there has to be some decisions that, that exclude humanity. Right? Let's be honest. When it's, whether it's riff, you know, riffing 6,000 employees at once, whether it's uh, setting up shop in a, in, a, in a country because of the reduced labor restrictions, whether it's uh, uh, unfair lending practices, right? whatever the case may be, there's a disconnect from humanity that's baked in to the system. Well, now we're asking people that have been rewarded to the highest levels of organizations by making some of these decisions to now be more human. To now put humanity back into consideration, and there's a huge gap in how to do that. Why? That's not taught in B school. That's not taught or rewarded, right? You don't get performance reviews on how well you showcased humanity as an executive leader or a manager. So DEI work in in a 3.0 era looks like, how do we teach people to be humane again? How do we have them tap into something that they haven't had to in an emotional way? to cross bridges that they haven't crossed before, right? Everybody likes to use, let's build bridges. Well, the expectation is that both sides meet in the middle, but let's keep in mind that one side's had to travel across the bridge the entire time. One side's never crossed the bridge, so to meet in the middle is still inequitable. We need to get one side of the bridge over to the other and exposure to different cultural realities uh, and understanding.
0: Yeah, so let me tell you, I'm actually uh thinking about something over here and if I can find what I'm looking for, I'm going to come back okay. to that. You said something, right. uh the centering of of cisgender able-bodied white men and then everything outside of that falls under the category of diversity forces the conversation of equity or and or inclusion. That's right. How how do we bring it back so that it's not heard as being, um, I'm mean, going to use offensive because I can't think of a better word in this moment. How do we continue to keep white men in the conversation? And yeah. how do we bring more white women into the conversation? Because let's be honest, Julie's going to fight suck. for her husband. <laughs> no, it's not that you, it's not that you suck. It's not you. It's not that you suck. I'm, I'm, in this example, <laughs> Julie's going to fight for her husband more sure. than she's going to fight for people outside of her family, and that's just that's just natural. And I so, I don't can. want people to feel like humanity means that you have to absolutely just go counter to what I think makes sense. Like I'm a fight for my family before I began to fight outside of my family. So how do we bring more white men and women into the conversation so that that's not heard as being offensive and or exclusionary? Yeah, I I appreciate that. And I think one of the reasons why I do what
2: I do in the approach that I do it is to educate rather than implicate, right? When you hear what I just said, um, it may sound offensive, but when when I say, When's the last time you saw a white male ERG? It should click that, oh, wait, I haven't seen a white male ERG. Well, why is that? Again, that's the default standard. So I don't want to indict. I'm simply creating a common language or or, or level of understanding so we're all operating on the same page. You don't have to like it. I hope you hate that I'm saying these things because they're still true not because you feel in some way implicated, right? I want you to be charged up to address and ask better questions. That is what I believe will push us to better solutions. So yes, I think it takes uh, consciously creative, compassionate white men, white women, black men, black women, all of the diverse dimensions, really to be honest with each other and really push ourselves to ask better questions um, and be okay with discomfort. Uh, you know, this doesn't get solved by, um, by continuously coddling the feelings. And that's one of the ways that I approach this is I tell people right off the bat, my job is to, uh, push you to better questions, which are going to have to help you to face some harder truths. If we're in the game of finding solutions for this, then these are requirements. If we're just talking about what activities will check the box performatively, that's a different conversation and probably one that's not going to be best served by me. Right. And so, you know, I, I don't know, meet too many people that want to just focus on performative, uh, at least in theory. Right. But, but it's sometimes you do have to ask these harder questions.
1: And I, I think that that's where we get to the question of accountability, right? Just to kind of round out this conversation. Yeah. When we're talking about and and as a as a woman with a disability that's hidden, right? I mm-hmm. I can say that I've had these conversations with my own community is that everything we we've always said everything needs to come top down, right? Everything mm-hmm. in our DEI commitment needs to come top down. What that results in in my opinion is white male executives having rewards and incentives for the people in the middle and at the bottom for doing the work, right? Doing the Mm -hmm. hiring, doing the retention, identifying the ways to do internal mobility or, Right the people at the bottom who fail to do those things facing the repercussions of that work or that failing and never That's seeing fine. the white power structure as it exists today pay any repercussions for failure to implement the things that are coming from the top down.
2: That's right. That that You nailed it. Uh, the question I ask is who gets fired if DEI doesn't work? All right, because everybody, when you ask accountability, it, it usually defaults to roles, responsibilities, and metrics. Now, those are those are measures, and those are assignment of tasks, But who gets fired? What's the consequence? All right, if you don't meet your sales number as a sales leader for three quarters straight, guess what? There's a consequence. Right. In fact, DEI is one of the only functions where, if it's successful, you work yourself out of a job. But if you fail. <laughs> If you fail as the individual, you can be fired. But if the strategy is not embraced, if people don't, uh, uh, you know, activate, if they don't, uh, you know, put it into practice, there's no repercussion. Because, the again, it, it's all about who are the intended beneficiaries of the work. That's a question that I ask at the beginning. If we do everything right and, you know, fully funded, fully resourced, executed who are the intended beneficiaries of this work? And, you know, there's a pause most times when people say, well, well, everybody will benefit. I say, but everybody's not marginalized. So if we're going into this with an everybody benefits, then you're going to create an everybody solution that doesn't solve anything for anybody, right? Except the organization that benefits from the reputation play that it all of that to say, accountability, what does that look like? It looks like people asking very strong questions. To your point, Julie, in the in the last chapter, uh, I pose a uh, a ton of questions, but first and foremost, an executive uh, uh, checklist, uh, as it were, questions that need to be asked. And they're honest questions, right? Are we committed to ending anti-racist or to being anti-racist or ending systemically racist practice, practices and processes? That's that's a a starter, right? Are we committed to that? If we're not, then then we shouldn't even go any further yet. Let's really be honest about what we're trying to achieve. And when we talk about accountability, it looks like consequence or incentive. These are the only two things that change behavior in human nature, carrot or stick. So we're starting to see some incentivization through, uh, you know, bonuses and Uh, tying DEI goals to performance uh, outcomes and so forth. And that's cool. But what happens when somebody's filed multiple complaints about a microaggressive manager or a work environment that's just completely toxic and there's no repercussion, right? There's not even tools for your HR team to deal with them, honestly, unless it meets a certain standard of legal statute. So, you know, there's a, very deep discussion to talk about and, and, a, and a very hard question to answer about uh, you know if in fact these accountability measures are put in place where there are consequences, well everybody's held accountable to that now, including the top. And I don't know too many people from a human nature perspective that willingly put themselves in the positions of discomfort or harm right or perceived harm. So it's, it's a it's a layered onion. I, I'm sorry to the listeners that I didn't come with that answer. Because they were like, I was waiting for it, but I'm like, this this is <laughs> this is six hundred years worth of layered conversation, right? Not going to be solved by Q two of next year.
0: John Graham, VP of Employer Brand and everything else uh, over at Shaker Marketing, because with that type of thinking, I, I know that they are tapping you to support to contribute to be a part of a number of other conversations outside of right. your role you are a jewel inside of the organization i am absolutely absolutely happy that shaker has this type of firepower in mm-hmm. that seat like not soft firepower you are strong and challenging organizations listeners you can find john on uh twitter at instagram 1906 that's Insta, graham one on Twitter at Instagram1906. And again, John, where can they find your book? Yes, anywhere books are sold,
2: uh, preferably, though, plantationtheory.com. Uh, as I tell people, we'd like to send my children to space, not Mr. Bezos. So, How about that? Yes. Yeah. Yes, indeed.
0: (laughs) How about that? And real quick, we want to just give a couple of shout outs to some women that made history in uh, 2021. Our Her Voice segment. Thanks again, John. We really appreciate you, man. Uh, 2022 next year, some new coins are dropping. Uh, Let me tell you, Maya Angelou is going to be on a coin. Sally Ride, who's an astronaut, is going to be on a coin. Actress Anna Mae Wong is going to be on a coin. A suffragist and politician, Nina Otero. Warren is going to be on a coin and Wilma Mankiller. Uh oh. Wilma Mankiller, the first female principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, is going to be on a coin. So we are looking forward to that.
1: And as we wrap up, just to every woman who has been burned out, stepped on looked over and those who haven't, those who've been cared for, but still been under the stress of an amazingly stressful two years of our lives. Thank you for everything that you've done. And we'll continue to look out for your voices in 2022.
0: Yeah. And it's probably a good time for you to read uh, McKenzie's report from September of 2021. Uh, Women in the Workplace. We'll drop the link in the show notes. Make sure you take a read of that particular book. Julie and I absolutely appreciate you all. Listen, we're enjoying the month of December. We're not here, but we're here. We made sure we brought some incredible voices, voices that you should research, voices that you should follow, voices that you should tell others about. And so make sure you share Crazy and the King on your digital and your social tribes. For now, Jay and I are ghosts. See ya. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah.